0: Welcome once again to the Primitive Church Podcast. We all want freedom. It might be freedom from the institutionalized racism that Rosa Parks fought 60 years ago this week. It might be freedom from the prison of addictions that destroy body and soul. It might simply be the freedom to do what's right. What will you do to get that freedom? Lead teacher Randy Pope starts the new series, Freedom, with this message entitled, Freedom from Sin. Covers Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Thank you for joining us today. We're starting a series today.
1: The series is entitled Freedom. If you've been around Perimeter very long, I'm sure at some point you've heard the discussion about the three greatest commodities of life. This would certainly be my opinion, I think most would agree. Three great commodities of life. One is purpose, having a reason for living, being able to wake up every morning and saying, I know why I live and I'm ready and I'm on mission to have a purpose, all important. Number two, freedom. Freedom, so critically, critically important, not viewed as the license to do anything we want to do. That's not real freedom. Freedom is the power or ability to do the things we know we should do. Number three, assurance. How do you know? How do you know when you die you're going to be okay? And to have that kind of confidence that I'm in a good place when I die. Well, you put those three commodities together and let me tell you, you've got life. Those are the three great, important commodities from my perspective. The series that we're in today is on the second of those three commodities. The series is entitled Freedom. It'll be in Romans chapter 6 and 7. It'll cover a seven-week period, but I want to suggest to you that this study in Romans is truly, it truly is the place to figure out how to find freedom, how to live the Christian life. I mean that. First of all, Romans considered the crown jewel of the Bible. Many would suggest through history, many of the greats say, if you know one book, know the book of Romans. I remember going to a man when I was in college, a young believer, man was a seminary professor. He was noted around the country. College students from all over were trying to listen to his, his, uh, tapes to hear what he was saying and to learn from him. And I happened to be at a conference where he was a speaker and I had an opportunity to talk to him for a few minutes. And I said, I just want to hear from you. You tell me what, what's the most important thing? Tell me, what do I do? I want to I grow in my faith. I want to be strong in my faith. Give me one thing. He looked at me and he said, Romans. Master the book of Romans. Particularly chapters 1 through 8. He said, the first year of my Christian life, every day in Romans. I'd read a little bit of a commentary after I'd read the scripture on those verses. And I would try to understand and from that day forward, I said, Romans. And I have to say, of all the most critically important chapters in Romans, I can say this. This chapter 6 leading into 7, for me personally, is the most critical teaching for my Christian life that I have ever received. My, my insight into this text, as your insight into this text, will be absolutely life-changing to you. If you embrace it, if you understand, very important teaching on freedom. I'd like to give you a context for the text that we're going to be looking at since we're jumping into Romans. By the way, uh, if you've been here very long, you probably know this, that uh, I started out year one, 40 years ago in this church, 39 plus years ago, I said, "We're we're going to learn Romans as a congregation. They're going to be a church that's fed well in the book of Romans so that the same thing happens to this congregation that happened to that professor and what I believe has happened in my life because Romans is so critically important. I said every year, one series out of Romans, we'll pick up where we left off the next series and the goal every five years, we'll cover chapters one through eight. This happens to be six years ago that we covered this series, but I'm telling you, every time I get in it, every time I study it again, I go this is critical. You're going to hear some things, I hope, that is familiar. You that have been around a while, I hope you've heard this before. And you hear it again and again and again. This morning, Carol and I were both in the bathroom. And, and she said, I'm looking forward to hearing you preach again. And I said, well, thank you very much. I said, I have to tell you, though. What you're going to hear is the same old you've heard me. Because when I go somewhere else to preach, I give a little quick summary of, of this whole series I'm giving you. I give in one message. And I said, you've heard this so many times. And she said, you know what? I can't hear it enough, though. And my response was, you know what? It's the same with me. I can't give it enough. I can't think about it enough. So much so that this is true. I'm saying every day. Is there an exception? There have probably been a few. But for years, every day, I began working through the outline that you're going to start today. And it didn't take me but two minutes, one minute but I walk through the truths that we're going to be unpacking. And I think about it for a few minutes. And then during the day, as I need, I pull it back and I pull it back and I pull it back because I cannot live the Christian life without the realities of this text. Now with that in mind, let's look at the context. Chapters one through three, the first portion of the book, I think it rightly divides there at uh, chapter three, verse 20. Basically why we don't have freedom and the answer is because of a sin nature if you're new to the bible you need to understand that we're brought into this world as sinners because of our first parent and therefore we have a sin nature within us and therefore we are called in Adam in our first father in Adam number two portion of the of the uh, entire eight books Romans 4 and 5 addresses the question how do we get freedom Where does freedom come from? Well, it comes from a new nature that's given to us. Every Christian has it. Every Christian is in Christ. So there's the next few chapters. Now we come to chapters 6 and 7. Why those in Christ are, number one, free from sin. Why are we free from sin? Because that's the whole teaching. that we're going to see for three weeks, free from sin. And then what does it mean to be free from the law? Because that's that's reality. Those in Christ, we've been freed from also the law of God. We'll have to understand what that means, but that's an important truth. But then we also need to understand that those in Christ, though free, yet still struggle with sin. It's not not that, oh, it shouldn't be that I'm struggling with sin. No, it should be that you and I are struggling with sin. And we'll understand that as we walk through that portion of the text. And do so, I'll give you a kind of a, a cliff note version of this, kind of the, the bigger, bigger, bigger picture, all right? We need to understand, and this is particularly for you that are new to the Bible, you need to understand, as I've just mentioned, there are two kinds of people. There are those who are in Adam, and they're called natural people in the Bible. Actually, it's referred to as the natural man, referring to man and woman, but one nature, it's a sin nature, that is the natural person. The other category of people you 're in one or the other, not both everybody 's in one or the other. we are perhaps a spiritual person or as it 's called the spiritual man. The spiritual man is in Christ, who is called the second Adam so we 're either in the first Adam or we 're in the second Adam. What we need to know is those who are natural have one nature, a sin nature those who are spiritual people have two natures. There are many Christians that are believing today that the Christian only has one nature. It replaces the old for the new. That's not true. And we'll see that in the text. Leads to some bad conclusions if you hang on to that kind of teaching. But no, there are two natures within the spiritual person. Now let's just take the spiritual person. Again, just the just the kind of the cliff note or spark note view of the whole thing. The spiritual person. Two things true about a spiritual person. Every real Christian, these two things true. Number one, they have been sealed, S-E-A-L-E-D, sealed with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13, after hearing and believing, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Holy Spirit indwells the believer... And from that moment on, we'll never, ever be a non-Christian again. Sealed with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit resides within us. It's called a mystical union. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But sealed with the Holy Spirit. Here's the second thing true of every true believer. There is the capability of being filled, F-I-L-L-E-D, filled with the Holy Spirit. Which means you can be a spiritual person, always sealed, but maybe or maybe not being filled with the Spirit. Last thing to say in summary. Those that are filled with the Spirit, and another way of saying it in Galatians 5 is walk by the Spirit. Those who walk by the Spirit, listen to this, will not carry out the desires of the flesh. I don't know if you realize how big that is, but do you know what the desires of the flesh are? Every time you hate somebody, that's a desire of the flesh. Every time that you worry, that's a desire of the flesh. Every time that we have, have anxiety of any sort, uh, I mean, it, it is going to be as we move into sin, it's a desire of the flesh. Oh, we should have concerns and so forth, but the perfect body, there's not going to be, when we're with Christ back again... We're not going to have anything called worry. We're not going to have hatred. We're going to have peace. It's going to be a different... Well, how do we experience those things now? Well, if you go a little further in Galatians, it says the fruit of the Spirit, meaning when the Spirit indwells us, is love. That replaces hate. Joy, which replaces the, the gloom of life. Peace, uh, which replaces the, the anxiety and the worry of life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and the list goes on of the fruit of the Spirit. It says, now here's how you get the fruit. You get the fruit when you're filled with the Spirit. Here's my great concern. I honestly believe, couldn't prove it, never taken a survey, but I honestly believe that great churches, churches like Perimeter Church, that if you asked for an honesty check and people said, "I'm gonna be true, true, truthfully, I'm mean, truthful with you, absolutely truthful," I think if I said, "When's the last time? When's the last time you appropriated consciously the power of God's Spirit to live your Christian life?" I think the vast majority of people would say, "I don't recall when. It's been a, probably a while." I In fact, I'm not even sure what you're talking about, Randy. And to hear that tells me, oh, no. Because if we don't know how to appropriate the power of God's Spirit, we are living the Christian life, yes, but we're living the Christian life on willpower instead of God's power. No one will see the difference around us, but let me tell you, we'll know the difference. That's why I have to wake up every morning and say, God, this is where it begins for me. And I'll review the very things we're talking about today. I have to do that. During the day, I'll do it many times. I'll say, Lord, right now, I to, I've got to appropriate the power of your spirit. I have to do it. Just this last few days, there's been something I've grappled with. And I found myself saying, Lord, I've got to have power right now. I can't will my way through this. You're going to have to empower me. And even then I fail often. But the chance of any victory has got to be when I say, God, i got to appropriate the power of God's Spirit. Now, here's the question. Can you appropriate the power of God's Spirit without a conscious appropriation, saying something to the Lord, having a, a discussion with Him? Well, of course you can. I think you can do it in the subconscious. I think it's true of prayer. Is it true that you've got to consciously be praying a prayer, a formed prayer, in order for you to be praying? Well, apparently not, if the Bible says pray without ceasing. You can't just walk through every moment of every day praying a prayer, praying a prayer. No, no, no. It's being in a spirit and an attitude of prayer. Can you be in a spirit attitude of being filled with the spirit? Yes, you can. But let me tell you, would it not be strange if I were to ask a group of Christians and I would say, look, what's the last time that you consciously prayed? And they said, oh, I don't remember the last time I consciously prayed. Wouldn't you say, well, even though you can pray in an attitude or spirit, that something would be wrong if you never consciously talked to the Lord? And I'm going to suggest that if, if you would be one of those that said, I've, I've gone a long period of time without doing anything that I would consciously think of as appropriating the power of God's Spirit, that means... That you are living in the power of will. And will can do a lot. But that's not how God intended us to live. So let's understand how that works. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. As you're opening the scriptures, note that the audience of this text that Paul is writing to are a people who could be divided into different camps. Part of the audience were people who were saying... You know, I'm a sincere believer. I really love the Lord. I know the Lord. I, I have every reason. I see fruit in my life. I know there's there's evidence. But I'm telling you, I am still defeated so often. I can't seem to win. These are the people who say, I'm trying to love, but I can't. I can't love my spouse, much less an enemy. I can't quit work. I can't quit this. I can't stop. They're just fighting constantly saying, I'm trying, trying, trying but I just can't seem to, I can't get out of the grasp of defeat. There's a second group of people that he's writing to, and these people were people who were rebellious in in the sense that that, uh, they were skeptics, but they loved the idea of being accepted by God and still able to do the things they want to do that God says no to. That's a second category. There's a third category of people, and these were people who were well-intentioned. And these were folks who didn't quite understand. And they're saying, Paul, be careful. Whoa, 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 whoa. You keep talking about abounding grace. And you keep saying, regardless how much we sin, grace abounds. That you cannot out grace. Just let me tell you, Paul, you keep teaching that. And what you're going to run into, you're going to run into a people who embrace moral laxity. They're going to say, hey, it doesn't matter how you live. Who cares? God's going to forgive it. Let's go ahead. Have fun. So it's that group of people. And you will see as we walk through the text, oh, yeah, he's saying this because of this audience or that audience or whichever it may be. Now, freedom requires, freedom requires two things. I hope everybody will kind of hold on to this. Freedom requires two things. First, an informed mind. We've got to have an informed mind. It's what we know. Then you have to couple that with a surrendered heart. It has to do with what we do. It's knowing and doing. It's better yet knowing and being who we are as Christians. There's a surrender that has to take place, a submission in light of a body of knowledge or truth. It's interesting through the history of the church. You've had two camps of people. people some people say, I'm a pietist. And other people say, I'm a scholastic. I love the, I love the knowing part. And that seems like all they want to focus on. And, and well, I, I'm a pietist. I want to I wanna live the right way. I want to do the right things. And it's yes, yes. You've got to pull those together, and what Paul is going to do here is he's going to start with saying it begins with what you know. You can go no further than what you know, but knowing alone is not going to get you where you want to go. But don't set it aside because it won't get you there. It is a critical, critical part of the whole. Then you put the surrender to it. What I'm going to address today in the first 10 verses is the first of three words It's the word know, K-N-O-W. It's a word we have to understand. What are the things we need to know in order to appropriate the power of God's Spirit? So let's look at at, uh, Romans 6, verse 1. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now he is just taking the question that is being asked of him. And he's just putting it back and saying, all right, this is the big question, right? What's going to happen? We're going to continue in sin so that grace will increase. That's what you're going to get to if you say, hey, you sin, grace comes, sin more, more grace. We want more grace, sin more. He says, that's going to be a problem. That's what the people are saying. Now, he's going to answer with a rhetorical question in verse 2. And he is going to say in the strongest of language. That is absolutely ridiculous. Possible, but ridiculous. May it never be. And that is a strong, it literally is like saying, God forbid, no. It's like he's raising his voice in that statement. No, no, no. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, a key term to understanding this whole text is going to be the idea of dying to sin, which I'm going to explain in just a quick second. But he's saying, hey, if we have done this thing called dying to sin, You tell me, how in the world would anyone start saying, let's live in sin? I died to it. Let's live in it. He says, that is too ridiculous to believe. Is it possible? It is possible. But it's absolutely absurd. And that's what he's saying. It is absurd. So now after verse 2, we have to understand now two key words that thus far in the text are going to give us an understanding. The first is when the word sin is used. Died to sin. The word sin literally is not understood unless you look at, look at it in the original language of Greek. And it has in front of it an article. It would be like putting the word the in front of it. Our word the. When the word the is not in front of it it's referring to a specific sin all right there was a sin of lust there was a sin of whatever but when he says the sin he is always referring to the nature of sin where all of those sins come from so we have to know that he's talking about the sin nature now the other term is the word died What does it mean when he says died? Well, don't we know that the word died means separate? You know, the body separates from the soul when we die. And that's the whole concept here. There is a death that takes place. Now, it's not dying to the influence of sin or to the pleasure of sin. It's dying to the control, the rule, or the reign of sin. So, some of you have seen me do this. Best way I can explain it. I use my hands. This refers, my left hand here, refers to me, Randy Pope. This is me, my left hand. This right hand is my sin nature. When I come into this world, just like you, we are united with our sin nature. We are bound to our sin nature. We are bound to sin. We are not going to be able to escape the controlling power of sin. It's who we are. We are sinners. And because of what Adam did, corporate personality, which everybody fights and hates, it's the greatest concept in the world because what's true of Adam is true of us because we're in his family. And God treats us as one family. So he sins, I sin. We all sin. Here I am. I'm like this. I'm bound to him. Now, I need need a third arm. And I don't have it. So... Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, first of all, let me just say, here I am. I am bound to sin, but then I died to sin. I died to sin. This is what happened. There's a separation. Remember the word means separate. Boom. That's what happens at the moment of falling in love with Christ. At the moment of what we might call being born again, this happens. And we're separated. Never, ever, ever, ever again to do this to come together. It can't happen because why? We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. What's that mean? Well, I need another arm. So I'll assume this stays here as my old nature and a third arm comes in and I'm united with Christ. This is his spirit and I'm united with his spirit. Now, this is still out here. Some Christians have bad theology saying, oh, that's gone now. It's replaced. No, 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 no. There's an addition here. I've got the Spirit now indwelling me, and I still have an old nature within me. That's why we'll have to study chapter 7. And so here we are forever like this. Now what he's going to do is he's going to now in the rest of the verses when we read, you're going to see him talk about this union with Jesus, with his Spirit. He's going to talk about this union. And he's going to talk about it through a term called baptism. Now you and I have been conditioned, many of us in the church have been conditioned, when we think of baptism, we think of one thing. We think of an event after salvation where you have water applied and there's your baptism. That is an expression of a baptism. But the real etymological root of the word baptism really gets you down to the word identified with. This is very, very important. We are identified with him in our baptism. In in what regard? And we're going to see it's going to be in three ways. We're identified in his death. And that is this for us. He dies, we die. He is buried. We are united with Christ. And then he's raised up and we are raised up. And he's going to say, here's the truth that you better get so much a part of who you are that you see yourself so identified with jesus that you think of yourself not as well i'm a follower following jesus but no 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 no. i'm one who has died like jesus i've been buried like jesus and i've been raised up like jesus i have to have that as my identity you have to have that as your identity and if you walk through the Christian life, and that's not your identity, then never think about that stuff. It's just, I'm living the Christian life, I've got to be good, i got to obey, i got to do this, i got to need to do this, I shouldn't do that. Let me tell you, you're going to miss it totally. You've got to know it's your union with Christ. Look at the definition of baptism. This is a great definition. It's the introduction or placing of a person or thing, now we're talking here about a person, you or me, into a new environment. Or, look at this, into union with with something else, and in our discussion it's with someone else, so as to alter its relationship with its previous environment. It's going to alter the relationship with that old nature. Totally, 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 it's going to change it. Now now we can look at verses 3 and following. This is how verse 3 reads. Here's the word know again. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. In other words, a new environment. Look at verses 4 and, and following. It says, therefore, we have been buried. So now he goes on to not just, not just died, but we've been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, we come to what I think is the most critical text for understanding. It's in verse 6. Look at verse 6. It goes like this. Here's the word knowing again. You can see how Paul is just saying, you got to know this, folks. Christian, you got to know this. Knowing this, that our old self, key term here, key term, old self, was crucified with him in order that our body of sin. Now this is going to be the big question: What is the old self? What is the body of sin? That it might be, and then it says, "Done away with." I think very unfortunate translation. Which I'll explain. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And verse seven says, "For he who has died is freed." And the word "freed" there, twenty-five times used in the New Testament. And it always talks about that concept of justification or justified. We're freed or justified from sin. Now, here's what he's saying through this. You come to these two terms. The first term is the old self in verse 6. It says here that you're crucified with the old self. When I ask a group of Christians, what do you think the old self is? I hear a chorus coming back to me sin nature. And I bet a lot of us would assume that unless we've been under this teaching or you've studied very deeply the scriptures. It's just kind of a natural, yeah, it probably means the sin. No, it's not the sin nature. Do you know what the old self is? The old self is the pre conversion individual. In other words, the old self is Randy before he became a Christian, gone forever, crucified. You will never, ever, if a true Christian, You will never see me as a non-Christian. I will be a Christian forever. I don't care what happens. I'm a Christian forever and ever and ever. Got it? But now you come to this next word, the body of sin. There's the sin nature. There is the sin nature. And unfortunately, the translation that's so often used is done away with. Well, first of all, that's not what the word even means. The words, in fact, you'll look in many of your study Bibles and in the margin, it will say, actually, comma, rendered powerless. And I'm going to dig into that next week. But that's the idea that it's now this nature, boom, it's rendered powerless. Meaning it has no control over me unless I choose to let it, but it on its own, I cannot say I'm back here. No, 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 no. I am a different person forever. And So this concept in verse 7, freed, literally, the idea of justified. Let me read a journal. I wrote this last night. But just a journal thought here on this. I put, the only way to be justified or freed from sin is to receive the wages of sin. And if sin requires the death penalty to be freed, one must die And then be raised from the dead. And then I put, how can this happen? Only one way, by union with Christ. It's the only way. If I die to my sin without a union with Christ, I'm dead. I'll never rise again. That's what happens to a a lost world without a Savior. They do die. But there's no raising. Because there's no one to pay for the sin. It has to do with union. And the union has to do with identification. Let me put it this way. There's a guy in the gym where I worked out for many years. And we we were in this little class together. And he, he is just a loyal, loyal, loyal follower of a team that I really, really don't like. And you're talking about, I mean, really obnoxious, okay? Really, really, really <laughs> obnoxious. And we have fun together, and we spar, and he comes in, and he says, I'm telling you, and I'm telling you. I mean, he's so beyond me. I go, yeah, you, your, your team may beat my team. I don't know, I don't know. And, yeah, you better believe we're going to beat your team. And he's just always that. And I'm so one day I went to him and I said, I need to ask you, when did you graduate from that school? He said, oh, I never graduated from that school. I never went there. I said, you didn't go there? He said, no. I said, when did you become such a, I mean, he flies to every game. He does this. And I I said, when did you become such a loyal fan? Oh, about X years ago, that long, eight years ago, whatever. And I said, Really? You've really become a Why do you do that? Why are you such a fan? And he said, "Well, because my wife is a fan of one of their greatest competitors and I wanted to be against her, so I just picked this team." <laughs> and I said, "You're living and dying every day. I mean, he's in mourning when their team loses. He's just he's victorious when they I was like, "Weird." And I said, "You got to be kidding me. You are that committed?" And you didn't even go there, and you only picked the team randomly? He said, I like their colors too. <laughs> and, and he is literally emotionally up and down, as so many of us are about our, our teams and so forth. I know. But do you think about it? Why I don't get, I could care less. I watched some games last night. I was interested to see who would win. I kept track of it, watching. But, but you know what? I didn't, it didn't matter because I didn't identify with any of those teams, so it didn't, it didn't affect me. You with me? That's an identification with a team that we have no control over a group of, of teenagers with a coach we don't know, and we identify so readily that either on Saturday or Sunday, very often football fans are going to go, I just am so, I'm so up, or I'm so down, I'm so excited, I'm so disappointed, I'm so this. Why? Because we identify with the team. Folks, that's an emotional identification. But do you see what identification does when we lock in and say, I'm identified with that particular team? Do you know we're living the Christian life not being identified with Jesus? I'm living for him, but I'm not identified with him. And folks, when that happens, it doesn't work right. There's no power. We've got to know our identification with Him that I have died. Why? Because He died. I died. And it's not just an emotional thing. Oh, I heard He did, therefore. I, no, no, no. It was for me. He did it literally for me. I died because He died. I'm united because He's united. I'm raised up because He's raised up. That's a big deal. If you find yourself so identified with Jesus and you keep, went, keep remembering, let me tell you, he is now risen. Then we start saying, I'm risen. I've been, re- been raised to a newness of life. How do, I, how do I experience this? through a power that comes through being united with him. How can that be because I've been separated from a sin nature that he'll never, never allow to come back and get me again? Let me tell you, that's when people start understanding the Christian life. You see, it's not about what have I done for Jesus lately. It's all about what he's done for me. That's why in this church you hear a different message that comes in this church from a lot of places we've been where instead of it's how do you do this and how do you do that and how can I help you do this and how can you become a better this and let me teach you force that let me do, do, do. No, There's a lot of practical training here, but folks, the emphasis here is no, no, no. Think about what he did for you. You won't identify with him. You'll just try to get something from him. It's not the same. You get identified with your Savior. That's the answer. So, seeker, I hope that you're kind of putting this together right now so that you're no longer thinking, oh, I guess this Christian life's about deciding to follow Jesus and start following his ways. Oh, you'll follow Jesus, and you'll want to follow his ways, but it's because you identify with him. His team is your team. And you can't get out of the grip of that. And you're just consciously remembering that's my team, Team Jesus. You get all excited about your Team Jesus. Oh, you'll be up because he's up. And when you're down, you'll say, this is crazy. I need some power to get out of where I am. And that's when you'll know. And then you'll start considering what you know. And with that, then you'll surrender the heart And you'll present the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. And next thing you know, you've got a power source that you didn't have before. Is it all power, all there? No, 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 no. no. Because I don't know it well. I'm not presenting well. But I do it day after day and week after week and month after month. And something happens. There's a growing influence where you identify more and more and more. That's what Christian living is all about. Christian, don't be deceived to make it so shallow. It is far better than what you think. Seeker, don't allow anybody to make you think. It's about praying a prayer, walking an aisle, getting emotional and doing your thing. No, it's accepting his thing on your behalf. That's the Christian life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant us to be a people who walk in your spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh and may we do it through our constant knowing and constantly considering what we do know about our identification with you. We're blessed to have you do for us what you've done as Christians. And for those of us that are here as seekers, oh God, let us see the bigger picture. May we fall in love with you because of the bigger picture. And may we walk with you from this day forward. We ask it in the great name of Christ our Savior. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast.